Let's get ready to rumble! Hello and welcome to Netflix vs. Cinema, the podcast that's sorry for leaving you high and dry with nothing to listen to, without two, you know, enthusiastic dummies talking about film for two weeks? We're really, really sorry. My name is Tozin, I am the host, based in the Midlands, and joining me as always on the Isle of Wight is Sharon. Hello. Hi, Sharon. Hiya. Yes, yes, we are a bit, uh, we're a bit, um... (sighs) We're a bit sorry, but life happened, and then COVID happened. Yeah. <laughs> and then COVID happened, so there were a couple of weeks where we were just kind of like, you know what, I think we, I think we should just leave it. <laughs> yeah, it did interrupt this broadcast. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does mean, it does mean that we have gone from having a couple of shows where we maybe had one or at most two films to talk about, to a podcast in which we have come back with four Four films in the cinema to talk about, which makes this a little bit of a bumper episode, which we are going to try and get through. So let's go quickly and say, so Sharon, um, after after our COVID hiatus, what were the films that you managed to get to see in the cinema? Okay, I got to see two um, smaller films. So I went sort of more the, the niche market. I went to see Serrano, or as they say in the film, Cyrano, which Cyrano. just wrong to me. <laughs> so I'm still Serrano, sorry. And I also went to see The Duke. The Duke. Ah, uh, yes. Jim Broadbent, Helen Mirren. And so in the cinema, I have seen over the last two weeks Uncharted and The Batman. <laughs> and um, what have you seen at home? I haven't seen as much at home. Um, ironically, even though I was isolating at home for 10 days, I just didn't watch anything (laughs) so i've seen one film i've seen a film on sky cinema called land land i've heard that's robin wright isn't it robin wright star and directed. sorry what's that she starred and directed it all right cool all right cool i'm just trying to figure out what the order would be in and like how we would talk about things okay at, at home so that means i'm gonna have to talk about three things uh, thankfully, I have been devouring things at home, and it's one of those things where, you know, you're like, oh, let me go into my viewing activity on Netflix and see what it is I've watched, and you're like, oh, 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 good lord, yeah, I've, that, that, there's quite a few, I've, there's quite a few different things I've watched, so I will, some of them I will put forward, and some of them I will ask you, Sharon, what would you like to hear about, so, okay. um, and before we go any further, I usually forget to say this, but if you will listen to us for the first time, what we do is that we see a couple of things in the cinema, rate them out of five, see things at home, rate them out of five, and then we get back home and we then we give um we see where our money has been better spent over the last two weeks in this case. Usually it's over a week. Over the last two weeks, where has the money been better spent? Has it been at cinema or has it been at home? Right. So I at home the things that I'm definitely going to talk about are the book of Boba Fett, because I have to talk about that. The, the Book of Boba Fett on Disney+, Plus, The Farewell, which is a film that I saw on Netflix, uh, quite good. And I'll give you a choice of the last one. You can either hear me talk about Space Force, seasons one and two, a show on Amazon Prime called Wolf Like Me, which stars Josh Gad and Isla Fisher, or a film with Olivia Coleman directed by, what's her face, Mag- Magic Gyllenhaal called The Lost Daughter. So, so what tickles your fancy? Space Force, Wolf Like Me, a romantic comedy with some super supernatural leanings, or The Lost Daughter, which is based on a book. Oh, my, I'm, oh I, actually, I might just have tipped the scales in the favor of that one. But- well, because because we tend to go down the drama, we tend to be a bit drama heavy. I think yeah. if we go something a bit more lighter, I'd go with Space Force. Space Force. Okay, cool. So I will talk um, the Farewell Space Force and the Book of Boba Fett, but leave Wolf Like Me to another day. But there is only one place to start. I feel like there is only one place in which we can start, which is the biggest thing, the thing that is getting all the all the press, all the trending things, and that is the Batman. This is yet another Batman movie. <laughs> I think Batman, because there's a time I used to think it was Spider-Man, who was probably the most rebooted um, hero. But when I think about it, it's actually Batman. You think about the Tim Burton Batmans, then you think about the fact that you had like three actors playing um, um, playing Batman from Tim Burton to Val Kilmer. Then you had um, 
Christopher Nolan came along with his Christian Bale one. Then you had Ben Affleck doing his version. And then you had a Lego Batman. And they had a Joker movie that was kind of like on his own, doing his own thing. And I think Batman is probably the one that gets rebooted the most. And part of it, I think, is because DC have flailed in their whole thing of trying to set up their own cinematic universe. And so they just kind of go, oh, no, we flailed again. We've, we've messed it up. What do we want? What do people want to watch? Batman, yeah, give him another Batman. (laughs) I think that there is an element of that going in here. Uh, However, and so when they go with that, there's so much potential for things to go wrong. I mean, I know if Sean was here, he would talk about how much he loved Joker. Wasn't that enamored with Joker? And um, so there's there's such a, there's a massive element of things that could go wrong. And I think what they have done right here is that they have chosen a filmmaker who actually has an idea of what he wants to do with Batman. So this is a film that you might have heard about. It's the one with Robert Bat- Pattinson playing Bat- Batman. It's three hours long. And this is a film... Yeah, it, it is. It is three hours long. I think we have to go with the headlines. We have to go with the headlines about this film. It is three hours long. This is the film where it has Batman in only his second year of being Batman. So it's quite a young Bruce Wayne. He's still sort of like, well, figuring out stuff in Go- Gotham and all that. And But it, this is... It's quite friendly. It's a detective story. So when you think about things like, you know, like maybe Heat or when you think about like, um, like one of the David Fincher movies, this is a detective story and they put an emphasis on Batman doing a lot of figuring out because the, the bad guy, and this is the Riddler and you have the Riddler and the Riddler's doing all these things. He's committing all these murders around Gotham of the rich and of, of the rich and powerful, rich and powerful in his words, corrupt. And he's like, yeah, we're going to, but he leaves all these clues and he, he tends to address them to the Batman. And Batman has to figure them out to figure out what's going on, figure out who the Riddler is, figure out who's going to come up next. And they do a lot of they do a lot of that in this film. And even the, this film is three hours, but the first hour flies by. Like the first, like this film kicks off, and within five minutes, I was like, "Oh, okay, okay, this is different. This, oh, oh okay, this this Batman might actually have a reason to exist. This Batman might actually have a point of being here, and not just a rehash of the old stuff." And this film very deliberately refuses to rehash some old stuff. Like, for instance, one of the, I think one of the most filmed scenes in all of cinematic history is Batman's parents being killed. I would, I would very happily never watch a scene of Batman's parents being killed again. It happens over, they keep showing it again. I'm like, why do we, and this film goes, no, we're not going to show that and doesn't show you that. And for that, that not showing Batman's parents being killed probably gets this film a star. On its, <laughs> on its own as far as I'm concerned but I think there are a whole bunch of things like Robert Pattinson he, this film is really about Batman Bruce Wayne is hardly in the film it's all about Batman and he spends most of the film in the suit spends most of the film being Batman and he is a very good Batman it's like nope. you yeah it is weird you that's get the, not what we're expecting to hear <laughs> no no that, he, and especially I mean in the suit he is such a good Batman and this this is very realistic Gotham is very grimy it's very like people used to worry about the Riddler and people used to say that like something like the character like the Riddler is too ridiculous a guy who walks around telling you riddles with a question mark on him and his outfits people said it's too stupid it can't really work and this film found a way to make him work he's kind of like a bit of a social it's like a social media presence who is railing against the corruption and I think with the world that we live in, where we've had like you know what happened in America during during the um, Trump administration, and how you had all these people who went and um, attacked the Capitol on January sixth, the Riddler in this film would be one of those people. He would be one of those people inciting people to go, because everything is corrupt and we need to burn it down. But I think it's done so well. I think Paul Dano is plays the role excellently, and I just think that this is one of the best Batman films ever made. Wow. Yeah, I mean, as I said, the first hour flies by. To be honest with you, after that, it sags. So but the first, I kept looking at my watch, but at the beginning, it was kind of like, I was like, man, how long is this? Is, oh my God, an hour? An hour is going by already. This is, this is really, really going forward. But then it slows down a bit to get stuck into some sort of... to get stuck into some, oh, check us out. Oh, look how... Um, uh, look how detective we were being and all that. Uh, there's some bits because it has it has um Selena. Well, it has Zoe Kravitz playing Selena Kyle, 
who most people would know that that name is usually attributed to Catwoman, but she yeah. isn't really. They, they never say Catwoman. She is a cat burglar. She has a she has like a a mask that looks very much like a cat, but they never say Catwoman. And the relationship between her and um, Batman is actually quite believable. The way it goes about it, the way I think it's I think is I think the performances across the board are brilliant. Colin Farrell plays the Penguin, but he plays the Penguin. Like you would be so hard pressed to know it's Colin Farrell because he's under so much prosthetics and he but he still gives a really good performance even with all that on. Uh, yeah, you have uh, what's his name, guy who played Gollum, Andy Serkis playing Alfred. So it has a really good cast. Everybody's on there, and there is one of the things I kept noticing, and I don't notice this that often, is the music. The music written by Michael Giacchino. He has done a really, really good job because in the first, as it was, I was going, oh my God, the music's brilliant. The music is just drawing me in. And he has this new Batman theme that just goes, dun, 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 dun. And it works. And it's one of those things where you go, the music is making this. Even the, And there's some bits where the music has this sort of weird romantic flourishes that for all the world reminded me of 1980s Roger Moore Bond movies. <laughs> I was, I was like, you could take that musical cue and plonk it into a Roger Moore Bond movie <laughs> love scene, and it would fit. And I was just kind of like, what is going on here with it? But it, yeah, all, all in all, I'll say it's a very good film. Go watch it. It focuses a lot on Batman. I think Gotham looks really good, especially I found other bits of Liverpool and Glasgow were used to make this Gotham. Oh, yeah. yeah, and it is a. This is a much. It's a lot more street level. It's a lot more street level. It's about the city. And it really goes into the mindset of Batman and it goes into why the heck does he do this? There's a scene quite early on where you have him walking into a crime scene and you have, the way all the policemen treat him, it's just accentuated that this guy is a weirdo who dresses <laughs> up as a bat and walks around the city at night. Weirdo! <laughs> and, yeah, that's, and, and the way it's, the way it's filmed... Anyway, doesn't it? So what was that? What was that, Sharon? That would set a few alarms off. Yeah. Any- yeah, and the film the film yeah, doesn't shy so away bad. from that. I think the, the <laughs> this film more than any other says Batman is a weirdo. Why is he such a weirdo? Why does this mean so much to him? And I think it actually successfully does that. So I would give the Batman four out of five. Wow. I would, yeah, cool. I would give up. I would. It, it is for my money. It is one of the best Batman movies ever made. And I say this as a big fan of the Dark Knight. This manages to stand beside the dark knight because it's not trying to do the same thing as what the dark knight did it says it it has managed to find something new to say about batman which is no mean feat to find something new to say about batman with all the different films that have been made about him and all the different reinventions and yeah. it really made me think there's actually as long as you reinvent it as long as you're going through a different area of batman there's there's still something to say which is unfortunate because that means we're going to get more of them. But <laughs> but if they're as good as this, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to complain too much. I'm not really going to complain too much. Uh, but anyway, I've used up all my time to talk about that. And now we're going to move on. I could say more of, uh, no, 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 that's going to be a rabbit hole. I'm going to talk about comics and how they keep reinventing Batman in the comics. And you could do that in films, but never mind, never mind, never mind. Move on, move on. Let's go to you, Sharon. Let's go to you, Sharon. And let's go to our... Uh, home watching stuff stuff that we watched at home so yes. you said that you saw it's a film called land that uh, was yes. directed and it stars um robin wright i don't know if it's her directorial debut or not but it was a 2021 drama so it has that lockdown feel about it there well, just... there's like three people in the film there's only about three people in it yeah <laughs> Literally, there's only about three people in it. But the the basic premise of the film is that your our character, and again, there's not a lot of speech in it because she spends a lot of time, um, as you'll find out. Um, yeah, so she's a woman who, at the beginning of the film, we know that she's experienced some sort of tragedy. Mm. And she basically wants to retreat from the world and from everything that has caused her pain. And so she decides to buy... A, a log cabin in the mountains and we don't know they don't say specifically where this is but i can only gather it's probably in like the yellowstone region of like northwest america because yep. they refer to the shoshone tribe and that's basically where they they're from 
and so she basically buys this this cabin outright and she gets she rents a car and a, like a u-haul thing to take her belongings to this cabin and then she says to the chap who directed her up there can you get someone to come and pick up the car and pick up the u-haul but don't i don't want to speak to them i just want them to to take this away yeah are you sure you're going to be isolated it's not a good idea to be in the mountains completely isolated she says no no i don't want to have any contact with anyone she throws away her phone and basically it's just her this log cabin and solitude and um she has like a whole she has like crates full of food and she has like an axe and she has a gun like a hunting rifle and basically it's her the first half of the film was basically her learning to survive yeah. and she didn't do it very well because you may think, oh yeah, I can start growing my own food, but then all the wildlife in there go, hey, free lunch. And so everything she tries to grow doesn't succeed. She thinks, oh, I'll just, I'll just fish. And then that's fine until the river freezes over and then the winter hits and then there's like blizzards that last for days. And it's like, I'll just go and hunt something. And yeah. Well, when you have a rifle in your hand and then you're looking at an animal, it's like, can I take kill anything? And so she gets to that point where she's isolated from, she's just isolated, she's on her own yeah. and she's not succeeding. She cannot, she, she's not equipped to survive. And yeah. she is on the verge of death when she is discovered by a passing hunter. And then as the film develops, it doesn't develop in the way you would expect. Like if a man discovers a woman living in the wilderness, it's gonna be like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. not happen in this film. Um but she but Oh, she, let's huddle together for warmth during the cold, cold winter. Yes. And it's just like <laughs> that's what I needed. I you know, I've I've had I've got a broken heart. I need you to mend my broken heart. Yeah. No no they're well away from those sort of tropes that we've seen before in this sort of film, which be, could easily turn into like some sort of romantic fantasy. But yeah. it doesn't like the brutal reality of trying to carve a living in a hostile environment. But then eventually, because she is just so ill-equipped, someone comes, well, some people, they come to help her. Yeah. And it's her way of then starting slowly, slowly, slowly to reconnect. And we then get a glimpse into why she decided to isolate in the first place so it is a film about this one woman's journey into basically self-discovery failure and then sort of rebuilding um a life that you know that she chooses cool so this sounds well like it could because there was a film called into the wild directed by sean penn which is who's yes robin wright's former husband oh weird that's right and it's based, <laughs> that was based on a real story isn't it about this young man yeah. who treats further retreats, yeah and yeah. he basically starved to death, didn't he? Or was he poisoned by eating the wrong sort of berries? He, yeah, he, he essentially he died because he was he was ill prepared. He yeah, was, because he, he had this romantic idea of what was going on, but he died. Uh, um, I might have just spoiled that film, but never mind. <laughs> but, um, so with this, it, it could end up being quite pretentious. It could end up like you know one of these things that goes, "Oh, modern life is rubbish. We don't need modern life. We just need to go back to nature and everything." But I think it's the kind of thing that will probably f rise and fall on the performance and the sincerity of what it is that they're saying. Does it ex does it do well in that regard? I thought it did. It's obviously a quiet film because there's obviously not a lot of speech in it, and mm -hmm. it doesn't romanticize the nature because well, if you you and I, well, I'm older than you, but we grew up in the days of um, like Grizzly Adams. You know, this man sort of at one with the wilderness and all the wild animals come and, you know, he befriends a grizzly bear and he befriends um, the Native Americans who live nearby. And yeah. it's all sort of like Lee sort of John Denver is playing in the background. <laughs> and you have that, that, that sort of like slightly sort of, he lives like a charmed life. Yeah. Whereas this is, you can see the actual brutality of the landscape is is, is absolutely desperately hostile to people if you're not equipped for it and the only way to survive is by hunting and killing and by shedding everything that's not essential yeah you have to be you have to learn how to survive in that environment and so it shies away from being a romantic getaway to becoming like this brutal survival but then she discovers what's essential and so that in our modern times when we were forced into isolation, someone who chooses isolation yeah. and what she needed to do to sort of what was essential for her. 
um, doesn't suit everyone, but yeah, she found out what was essential for her to, to keep living and to want to keep living after this sort of tragedy. All right, cool. So how many stars would you give it? I'll give it four, actually. I thought it is a, it's not a great one to take because it is a quiet film. I think Sean would like it because in some ways it reminded me in some ways, like, you know, we saw a film together called Leave No Trace. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With his daughter. And the more he wants to retreat from society, he sort of almost like loses, he sort of separates with his daughter because she wants to reconnect, whereas yeah. he separate him. And he, again, like, keeps finding himself, like, it's too busy. So he, he wants to go ever more and more remote. So it reminded me of, of that a little bit in people that they want to go off grid, but not in a romantic sort of way. But this was more of a practical, you know what, there's so much of the modern world that we just don't want to, to be part of anymore. We want to retreat to somewhere where we feel that we can become more real. All right. And so, yeah, I thought it was a challenging film, an interesting film. It had some nice things to say, but not in a, in a sentimental way. So, yeah, I, I thought it was a good, worth a, worth a watch. All right, so cool. Now, what you just said, that has intrigued me because I've heard some people review this and give it two. But if it gives, if some people say two, as people say four, I'm like, okay, cool. Now I want to watch it. Yeah. So... <laughs> You'll give it a two because there's no, there's no high point to this film. There's no drama. There's no catharsis. There's no dramatic tension. If you say it's like, it doesn't change its tone throughout the film because often you want a high bit. You want like drama. You want tension. You want to, this is like a, but uh, an even keel all the way through. Even keel all the way through. Did you did you eventually watch Nomadland? No, I never did. Okay, cool. Then never mind. Because I, I think it would be interesting to compare the two of them because on the surface they sound similar. But yeah. now we move away from home stuff and we go back to the cinema. Back to the cinema for the first thing that Sharon saw. So you saw Sir. How do you say? You say Serrano. I say Serrano because I've always heard it was Serrano de Bergerac, but. Um, the Americans tend to say Cyrano. Oh, so yeah. what Cyrano de Bergerac, yeah. So Cyrano, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. But anyway, tell us about Cyrano de Bergerac. I'm just going to say that because then I say, <laughs> I say it properly. Yeah. So, tell us so about this film. It's a musical version of the film, but set in a... Because we've seen, they did, um, Steve Martin did Roxanne, which is like a modern version of it. And yep. then uh, Gerard Depardieu did a French... Yep. A French, a French sort of classic version, sort classic of version. straightforward retelling of the original story. Yes. Yeah, so this again is that is set in the period of time, um, slightly heightened because I think some of the dresses I was thinking, mm. so like a heightened <laughs> version of reality with musicals. It's a musical, so yeah. expect it to be a, you know, a bit out there. Um, and so the story is basically um, Serrano de Bergerac in, is normally is, is, he's always been cast as an unattractive man. Yeah. Famously, he's always had a very big nose, or yeah. and the nose that basically distorts his physical appearance. So that's the first thing that you notice about him. Yeah. And because of that, it's made him slightly sharp, slightly. Um, I don't know, sarcastic. Well, yeah, he's, he's he's had to find other ways, other ways to sort of make yeah. himself stand out or to, or to defend himself. Yeah, so he, yes, yeah, so he's not an easy man to get to know, but he's, the object of his love is this sort of young woman, Roxanne. Yeah. And, but he doesn't believe that she, well, at, well, he does, at one point he believes that, you know, she could love him, but and then she basically falls head over heels in love with, at first sight, with this handsome young soldier in his company yep. who is like the perfect male specimen he's tall he's handsome he's athletic he's perfect in every way physically yeah and this film the only difference is that that serrano is played by peter dinklage yes who, he's like a good looking man he's the the characteristic you notice about him is that he's a dwarf yeah and so it's his stature that you notice rather than his good his looks because I've always thought he's actually quite a good looking man. So yeah. you know, he's ugly because you know well he's just he's just not. <laughs> but he has got a different build. So that is the thing that has sort of separated him from from the the, the sort of the usual crowd in this particular film. Yeah. And so in this film, the story is that because Christian, who's the object of her love, is basically inarticulate. Yeah. Doesn't speak fluently and he doesn't write fluently and he doesn't really express himself 
um, with any sort of depth of emotion, or seemingly without any real depth of emotion to his words. Whereas Serrano is a wordsmith. He yeah. can conjure images with his words. He can create moods. He can, he can draw pictures with his words that create this sort of feeling of um, the depth of his love that he feels for her. And so because Christian cannot speak these words that he wants to express to woo this woman, um, Serrano does it for him. He writes the letters, he gives him the speeches to say, he um, he woos her. Yeah. It's what he's, he, but it's his own emotions, but he's just giving them to Christian to sort of win this fair maid's hand. And it's done through song and through dance and through expression. And then while all this is going on, there is a war being fought in their region Mm -hmm. And they are both soldiers, and so, um, and there is a very wealthy duke who has his eye on the fair maid, and so there's like this sort of love quadrangle, really, because there's like three <laughs> men after her. Yeah. So, and, um, yes. So, so, so it's good because it's it's a bit of a classic story, and I think that it's one of those stories that you've seen elements of it show up in all sorts of different areas. I'm pretty sure that there's an episode of The Simpsons. That sort of like you know riffs on Cyrano yeah. de Bergerac. It's been uh, out there a long time. Yeah, it, it's been other for, and so it's kind of like whenever you get a new Shakespeare, the question is like you know you have the story and everything like that, but a is there a reason to make this film now, and do the changes that they make work, and b is it done well? See, my, I've always I have never really liked this story. Okay. And because it's the element of deception. Yeah that I have never been comfortable with that because I'm thinking in a modern parlance I'm not sure if I've got this right in the right context but in modern parlance is it called catfishing where someone yes. the photograph of someone else to then yes. draw in so um yeah, that's that a good point Sirena is just like old school catfishing yeah so that and I've never been comfortable with even before with this modern phenomena of like you know you get this strapping handsome chapter sends you like a friend request on Facebook when basically he really just wants to steal all your money. Whereas yeah. I don't think there's no sort of inherent dishonesty in this as in what they're trying to do. But part of me is like, it's just not right. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, you're you're, fooled, you're trying to deceive this woman into believing that these words are coming from this man when they're actually not. Yeah. And even though he says, oh yeah, I love her, I love her, but I just can't say it. It's still, so it's like saying, well, are you being fair to any of you? And I think that does come out in the film, which is what redeems it for me, is the fact that, without giving sort of spoilers, I, mean, I think most people know how this story goes, um, the fact that they, they they acknowledge that in the film, to me, was just like, a, oh, I'm glad they've acknowledged that. Because oh, now, now I can enjoy this. <laughs> deeply uncomfortable thinking, well, you're just, you're just deceiving her. It's not yeah. right. Yeah. So... Yeah, so I thought they redeemed itself in the way the storytelling was done. It was accomplished. It was enjoyable. The music, I thought there was a couple of really excellent songs. There was one song I was trying to think. Um, I'm just going to look up. I've got the cast details here because I keep getting it saying his name wrong. I know who, exactly who he is. Um, Glenn Hansard. I keep wanting to call him Greg Hansard, but Glenn Hansard has a cameo in it where he's one of the soldiers and he has a song. And that basically was the best song in it. All right. Um, but there was a few songs that I think if I heard them again, they would probably sort of go. But but I found them a little bit forgettable. They yeah. had a bit like a, like a oh, it's a modern musical. They're all going to be like very nice and very jolly, but you're going to forget them more or less as soon as they've moved on to the next song. You're going to be you're going to forget about it. Oh, so Glenn Hansard, he's the guy from Once. Yeah, the guy from Once. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> as soon as he started singing, I was like going, oh, it's, it's him. Is it? And I kept thinking, Greg, Greg. No, when you when you sing, I'm thinking, what's his name? Is it Greg? Is it Greg? And it's Glenn, Glenn Hansard. But yes, yeah, so that was the best song in the in the whole thing. So I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good version. It's a good musical. Again, I think the more you heard it, you probably one the songs become a bit more memorable, possibly. But there were no instant grabbers. Yeah. You that I thought, oh yeah, that's quite a nice tune. I don't think I'll be singing it on the way home. Well, yeah, but well, that's the thing. Like you know, I I thought that about Encanto, and then we don't talk about Bruno happened. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, but I think when I was watching things like The Last Showman, The Greatest, yeah. Showman, The Greatest Showman, yeah, there was a couple of songs there. I was humming as I was going home, thinking, yeah, oh, yeah. that was a good song. So I think it can be done where there's sort of 
Well, the, I mean, the, the the Greatest Showman. There was a, there was a song in the trailer that you were humming for ages. Yeah, before, <laughs> before the film even got released. So. Yeah. So I think they probably could have done with a better, some maybe some more punchier songs. But no, I thought they did it well. So uh, for me, I enjoyed it. But I think basically it's probably still going to be a three. Okay. I thought there was some highlights. It was some well done. But for me, the context of it still, I'm just uncomfortable with the um, with the basic story going back to the fundamentals of the story. I'm yeah. just like, uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they did it very well. Peter Dinklage, I think he's just. A class act, basically. Yeah. I first saw him in a film called The Station Agent. Oh yeah. A long time ago, and um, I was literally I was the only person in the cinema when I went to see that. <laughs> but since it... then, I've thought, yes, you need to keep an eye on him. And then I've watched more or less when he's appeared in really random things. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I, I do rate him anyway as a as a someone to to watch. Game of Thrones died completely. Don't even factor that in his film work he's just got some really interesting things he's done i agree i agree and then is i i i fear that this film might go the way of the station agent for me because the station agent is one of those films that i heard about when it was released everybody raved about it raved about his performance and i was like yeah i've got to see that never seen it and then cyrano or cyrano well, I'm confused now. But the thing is, the the thing with this is that uh, I feel like it's a film I want to see, but I think I'm not going to see it in the cinema. I don't think I'm going to be able to watch it in, in the cinema. And it's not until it gets onto onto, and we'll see what happens then. But I do so far. I do want to see this. I do want to see this. Oh, I think someone's trying to come in here and join the We're podcast. Come and say hello. But I would say I'd give it three. I'd give it three stars. But a high, a solid, good. You know, could go higher three, but definitely a three. All right, cool. A three. Oh, oh somebody... Someone's just walked into the room. Someone's just trying to show off, show off a walking. Come here. You want to come here? All right. Come here. Come here. Oh, you want to see Auntie Sharon? Come on. Come on. I need to see that baby. <gasps> baby, come Come see Auntie Sharon. Come Hello. see Auntie Sharon. We're going to have to let you Daddy. go soon because you're, you're about to try and pull out all of the cables. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> Try to pull out all the cables. All right, cool. So, so we give it three, definitely three. Okay, a three for you. You, you pronounce the name of the film. I would. It's um, Cyrano is how they've said it in the film, but I would say Serrano. Serrano. Okay, cool. So three stars for Serrano. Bye, Kemi. I'll come to. Uh, I'll come hug you soon. All right, cool. Now we go back to um, Netflix and Friends, but Disney Plus to be exact. To go with something that was much hyped, something that was much hyped before it was released, um, and this was the book of Boba Fett. And as the title might suggest, this is based on the character of Boba Fett, who, as far as I'm concerned, inexplicably has had a massive following and has been seen as one of the coolest characters in the Star Wars pantheon, even though, even though, he does nothing. He sort of turns up, stands there, says he's now good to me, dead, and then and then gets knocked into a hole in the ground. And quite frankly, for me, if that was the last we ever saw of Boba Fett, I would have been happy with that. I had absolutely no, but I but I didn't see the see the Star Wars movies for the first time in the West. I saw them in Nigeria, and I was just kind of like away from all of the hype that came around them. And it was only years later that I found out that there was all this massive hype about the character of Boba Fett that seemed to center solely around the fact that the guy had a backpack. Or not even that he had a backpack, that his toy had a backpack. <laughs> and and that, that's, that's the only thing I can bring it down to. And so they made this show, The Book of Boba Fett. They've had The Mandalorian. They've had two seasons of The Mandalorian. And Boba Fett shows up in The Mandalorian. And at the end of The Mandalorian season two, they said... Tune in next for the book of Boba Fett, and they set up this whole thing like the of Boba Fett. Next thing we're going to go look at Boba Fett, and I am pleased to say, I am pleased to say that this show, once and for all, validates my original assessment about Boba Fett. That they, that is, I, I think this show is sh this should be the end of the argument that with Boba Fett there is no character, there is no story. And unfortunately, and unfortunately because I quite like Tamora Morrison, there is no performance there of Boba Fett. This show is dull. 
it is dull as dishwater. And it, they, they start off by going in all sorts of knots, trying to explain. Like, this show spends the first couple of episodes trying to explain why it exists. It's like, oh yeah, yo, you know the last time you saw Boba Fett, he got knocked into this pit that sucks, that, that you know, digests people for a hundred years and no one's ever escaped. But no, he's still alive. But let's try and show you why he is alive. We'll, we'll explain to you why he's alive. Oh yeah, you know, when he went in there, this happened and then that happened. And then they give, the, they give this explanation of why he's still alive. And you're like, that doesn't... That doesn't hold water. I'm sorry, no. <laughs> it doesn't hold water. And so then they have this horrible, horrible thing where in the modern day, he has gone to Tatooine and he is becoming like, um, he's taking over from Jabba the Hutt's business where he's going, he's trying to become like sort of like a mob boss in Tatooine. Why? Never really explained. And then they keep going into this flashbacks of, oh, after, after he somehow miraculously survived that thing and um, this is what happened to him next. And you're just kind of watching it and you're going... I don't care. <laughs> it's it's a I don't care, and because obviously I started off not thinking Boba Fett was that great a character, not understanding why there was such a big noise made about Boba Fett. I just didn't. Yeah, Kemi, me too. That that's exactly the way I felt about him. So it's like, <laughs> so it's like you know, I was like you know, they, they start off with and so I know I I started off from a point of view of probably not going to like this. I'm probably not going to like this. But they weren't doing anything to make me care. And from what I've seen from a whole bunch of other people talking about exactly the same thing, there is nothing in this to make you care. This is this is this is what I feared. Because I remember the the Rise of Skywalker came out, I hated that. And then Mandalorian, I did not watch it for ages because I just feared that Star Wars was over. Star Wars was, was done with, there was nothing else to do there. I watched the Mandalorian and I thought, oh wow, maybe there is something to do there. And Bo- Book of Boba Fett has taken me back to no. This is a dead IP. There is nothing in here. There's yeah. just it's just people flogging the dead horse because they have Star Wars and they're going to try and make something else to make us spend money on it. But it's rubbish. So yeah, the the and by the time you get to the by the time you get to the the finale, they have a battle that makes no tactical sense. And I know people might say, well, you know, it's a space opera, but it's still got to make some sort of sense within the world. Why would you do that? Why does one character who is supposed to be key to this whole thing disappear for pretty much the entire battle because she's going to go off and do something and going to bring back some help, but she disappears for the entire battle. And then it's at the end, there's this scene where they kind of go, oh, this scene feels like all for all the world. Like somebody went, oh, Oh yeah, we forgot about her. Um, let's make a scene to say that she was doing something cool somewhere else while that was going on. And if there the, the is people talk about this, and I agree, a lot of pe- people sent me messages before I watched it and said that it felt like a five-year-old playing with his Star Wars toys. <laughs> like the the plotting of it, it felt like, oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? And if this person uses the force, and this person rides that, and that person, oh yeah, that could happen. And it just, it's just, it's just bobbins. It's just absolute bobbins. So I did not enjoy this. I watched all seven episodes, and one of my friends, Ali Silver, was like, "Well, why do you keep watching?" I was like, "Because I live in hope. I live in hope that something, even though it starts off bad, might get good." But, but sometimes you get one episode that just turns everything around. Oh, and you do have the, you do have one episode that that threatens to turn everything around, and and this and this is the thing I'm talking about. You have one episode that threatens to turn everything around, and making my point for me again that with Boba Fett there is no character and there is no story there. There is no character or story with Boba Fett. The one episode that everybody universally agrees is the best episode and gets you interested again does not have Boba Fett in it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it <does. What's> that? <laughs> yeah i know and, and so i just feel like okay now I, I feel if the only reason they made this show is so that all the boba fett fanboys can shut up and stop talking about how great he is because he is not great he is rubbish he's a stupid character then this show has has played a role but apart from that it's rubbish it's a two for me two <laughs> yeah, all right cool <sighs> Yeah, glad I got that off my chest. Good old rant. <laughs> and now, we'll go back to the cinema, and I'll talk about Uncharted. Now, Uncharted, I think I'll go through this really quickly. Now, Uncharted is based on a video game. Based on a video game, which was on the Playstations, and these video games were highly, highly influenced by films. Especially, I would say, the Indiana Jones movies. 
the the they were highly influenced by the Indiana Jones movies. So, oh, I just realized I'm going to be talking a bit. I'm going to do this one quickly. So it's um and so th- this is a film that is being made about a video game that was inspired by Indiana Jones. So, <laughs> so. I was worried that this film is not going to be anything but a sub-Indiana Jones. It's going to be kind of trying to be Indiana Jones, but not really. And that is kind of what happens. It's kind of what happens. You have Tom Holland, who is, obviously, he's one of the biggest stars in the world right now. He is extremely charming. You have Mark Wahlberg. And Sharon, you called it. You said that they were going to do this sort of like old guy, young guy, sort of young, precocious person. And and. The, they, that's what they do so uh, so Mark Wahlberg is the older one and they keep to make, making jokes about the ages and the relative ages and what they know or don't know and all that sort of stuff and this one calls that one grandpa this one calls this one like you know makes jokes about this one where he's going to start shaving and they have that thing that goes back and forth the plot who needs to know the plot all you know is that these two guys something happens they meet up they start chasing some treasure around the world and things happen now the thing that I feel that well, the Indiana Jones movies, at least the first three, they have this kind of magic about them where you get taken into the world that they're in. And when they start talking about their hoary, well, in history, this person did this, or in history, the Ark of Covenant, blah, 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 or the Holy Grail, they come up with something that sort of like, you know, brings you in. And this, when they come up with their reason of the treasure, of what happened to make the treasure be there, why they're trying to chase it around, and the MacGuffin of, oh, we need this cross because this cross isn't actually a cross, but it's actually a key it just feels very mechanical. It mm. feels very mechanical and it feels as if there is no reason for this thing to exist other than we want to get from here to there to there. And even the plan of, the plan of, of because it's supposed, to, it's supposed to be about these sort of like Spanish, I guess the conquistadors, if that's how you say it, um, who found a treasure but hid it somewhere and but then they and then they put a map somewhere and you're going around this whole town and in this whole town i think it's Bar- i think it's supposed to be barcelona and in, Bar- in barcelona they've gone and they've done this then they put it and you put it but you you start as you're watching it you're going okay this is just a bit by the numbers it's kind of a go to a go to b go to b. there's no it's like when you, when it's like the batman for instance where you actually see some detecting and some figuring stuff out there isn't really any figuring out here it's just kind of like it just seems like dumb luck of just falling into yeah. things and going into things yeah. and 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 things yeah. that they things that they figure out that you go hang on wait that's convenient <laughs> and <laughs> and and then you go, but but how did they figure that out all those years ago, all those centuries ago? How did they figure that out to do? Did they have that? And it just kind of makes you go a little bit. Mm, uh, okay, fine. Uh, it's a bit something. Uh, so it ends up being a bit of a three star thing. There's bits of it where there's fan service. There's some set pieces which are done from the game. But the point is that they even the set pieces. I feel like if you're going to do something like this, though, because the whole point about the game is that people say the set pieces in the game blow your mind the set pieces in the game make you go wow and so they they just replicate the set pieces in the game but i'm like that's already been done if this film had done something with the action where it had gone a little bit more out there a little bit more blow your mind if they'd gotten like the stunts team from the raid to do some of the action scenes it might have a reason to exist but at the moment i was saying not really it's inoffensive enough but it's uh, indiana jones's crown is safe i'll give it a three out of five (laughs) And okay, me again, me again. Um, well, going back to Netflix. Okay, so and now we're going to talk about something that was on Netflix and something that does not do all those things. Something that is really, really good. I'm going to spoil this review by saying I really like this. It is a film called The Farewell. Now, you may have heard it's directed by a lady called Lulu Wang. It stars Aquafina. And the whole idea behind it is that the, you start off and you meet Aquafina and she is a... She is a American. She's she's an American of Chinese descent. So, so can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. I keep getting like little sort of like things crackles. So she's an American of Chinese descent, and you meet her. She's like thirty years old. She's living in New York, but she's having a phone call with her grandmother, who is in China. And from the way this is done, it shows that you get the idea that she has a phone call with her grandmother every day. So she has she she has this phone call with her grandmother every uh, every day, saying how are you doing, what's going on. Her grandmother is in the hospital, but her grandmother isn't telling her that she's in the hospital. She's like, grandmother, what's that noise in the back? Oh, I'm just at your auntie's house. Don't worry about it and all that. And it turns out that um, it turns out that her grandmother has c- 
contracted cancer and is going has been given three months to live. So it's it's terminal. She's been given three months to live, and the entire family. So her parents find out about it. Her uncle, who left China and lives in Japan, finds out about it, and they they she gets home and her parents are like, oh yeah, we're going to we're going to China. It's like there's like why? Oh, we're going there for a wedding, and it's all we're like who is it? Your cousin? He's getting married, and it's like really? If he's getting married, why does dad look so sad? And eventually, the truth comes out that her grandmother, uh, who they call Nai Nai, is dying. But in their culture, they don't. If somebody's dying from cancer, they have this belief that if you tell somebody about that they die from cancer, it's the cancer that kills them or the knowledge that kills them because they just stop living their life. So they don't tell the person that they're dying from cancer, but they come up with an excuse for everybody to come around so they can see this person one last time before, uh, before. It, so what happens is her cousin, who is in Japan has been going out with this Japanese girl for three months. And so they go, yeah, they're going to get married. And so they use that as an excuse for to get everybody back to China to see the, to see Nai Nai before she dies. And she's like so happy the whole family is back and she loves the fact that... And the, uh, but the the girl, Billy, she's like, but we should tell her. And people are like, no, we don't think you should come. We don't think you should come over. She's like, what do you mean I shouldn't come? It's like, we don't think you should come because you can hide your emotions and you are going to blurt it out and you're going to spoil the whole thing and it's going to be really obvious to her that she's dying. So that, so she 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 um, ignores them, ignores them and goes over to China anyway. And it's all about the, the, the dynamics between this family as they're trying to navigate this whole thing and they're trying to say goodbye to their grandmother without saying goodbye because she's not supposed to know and I, th- I thought it was absolutely fascinating I thought it was brilliantly acted I thought that the actress who plays the grandmother is brilliant I thought she is I, I thought she was just brilliant and, um, and I thought Aquafina was, carries the film really really well and you get these scenes where you can just sort of see these characters internally struggling with this because even her dad, her dad is like, this is what we do in China. But he's been in America for a while and he's like, but in America, we couldn't do this. This would be illegal. It would be illegal to not tell her. Like they even go to the point where there's a scene where they take her, they take, they intercept her results from the hospital and they change them before she's seen them so that she doesn't find out that she has, she has cancer. And it's just such a lovely portrait of the family. And it really, one of the things I was watching, I just, I just ended up going, you know what? I don't think family's supposed to live across the world. I don't think family's supposed to be apart. I think family's supposed to be together. And it really gave me that sort of like feel about it. And the, the there's some of the final scenes of the film just absolutely would break your heart. Yeah, just absolutely break your heart. And then there's a twist at the end. There's a twist at the end that I don't think you will see coming. I don't think you see coming. So all in all, the farewell I thought was a brilliant film. I thought it was, and I can understand everybody who said it was one of the best films of the year that it was released in. The farewell is excellent. If go watch it on Netflix, four out of five stars. Right, cool. That's enough of me. Do you think talk. maybe Sean has seen it? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he has seen it. I mean, the film is mostly in Chinese, to be honest, with some English. It's mostly, and that was one of the reasons why I, I put it off for a while because we, I was kind of like, I need to be able to read to follow this story, and uh, I need to be in the right sort of frame of mind. And and yeah, oh my god, I've got a baby that I'm trying to sort out of like that. So, but you need it. All right, cool. So now we go back to cinema and we go to the Duke. So Sharon, tell us about the Duke. The Duke is based. It's a British film. Uh, based on a true story set in 1961 and it is a story of when um, as often happens when a work of art um, is in danger of going abroad sometimes the British government buy it to preserve something for the nation and this is referring to the portrait is a portrait of the Duke of Wellington he of Battle of Waterloo and the Napoleonic Wars and the defeater of Napoleon. He was painted by Goya and it's quite a famous painting. I don't think it's actually the best painting of the Duke of Wellington, but it's a very famous painting and it was in danger of going out of the country. So the government in 1961 raised £140,000 to save it for the nation. And then it was displayed in the National Gallery. And it's our hero of the film, and in his own small way, 
<laughs> as in basically he's completely inept at it. Yeah, this he's a bit of a social campaigner and his bugbear is to say that the elderly and war veterans, this is based in nineteen sixty one should have a free television license. The story goes that, that the film progresses that basically he decide, he goes to London to see if he can petition the, the, the newspapers and petition Parliament his campaign about free television licenses and basically no one wants to know. So he decides to um, break into the National Gallery and steal the Goya, uh, which uh, he does. Uh. And he takes it back to his home in Newcastle, <laughs> yeah, and he then proceeds to write to the Home Office and write to those people saying that I have got the Goya, you know, just I'll give it. You. I'm only, I'm not stealing it. I don't want anything from it, but I think you should give it that hundred thousand pounds should be used to spend money on the um, license fees for old people. And basically, he it's quite a long story short. He basically ends up. Um, handing himself in eventually with the painting and he goes on trial and then you have uh, this sort of quite a classic trial basically where his defence is basically that he didn't actually steal it because he never intended to keep it he was only ever borrowing it to highlight this social injustice and the film is basically about what happens to him and it sort of builds his picture around his life that yeah he never yeah he's he didn't there's no theft because he didn't intend to keep the portrait. He was only borrowing it the same way, you know, we would borrow anything and and maybe be delayed in giving it back. So, so now the thing is, when you're, desc- when you're describing that, the, the phrase non-more-British comes to mind. Yeah. In that, it feels like this couldn't be a more British, like, you know, more yeah. British-eccentric story if you tried, especially because it's based on a true story. Where the yeah. bones, the bones of the story are real, actually did happen. That he did take the duke, he did go up, and he did he did have all these ideas. Obviously, it stars Jim Broadbent, and if you wanted to make your a character in a film lovable, you really it's hard to go wrong by ca- after after you've cast Jim Broadbent, especially with Helen Mirren playing his wife. Playing his wife, and yeah, Matthew Good playing his solicitor. Um, it's just it's like tick 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 all these um. Yeah, a British drama. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like heartwarming British drama. It, it yeah. and I know that this film has been delayed for ages because I've been seeing the poster for this film in the cinema, the cinema I go to in Redditch, since Christmas two thousand and two. Since Christmas twenty twenty. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the poster for the Duke has been up on the wall since then. It was supposed to come out. It had it didn't come out. It was supposed to be released. That it hasn't, and then finally it's here. And I think this is a film that I really want to see, probably more than most right now. I really want to see the Duke. I want to see what it says. So I want to see what what it has to has to say. But anyway, how many stars would you give it? What would you think of? What would you think I, of the Duke? I enjoyed it. I mean, it is very British. It is of, of its type. So I would give it a good three. So, but I still think it's, yeah, it, it does what it, it's supposed to do. It delivers. It's entertaining. It's interesting. Makes you think about some things. Um, yeah, so I enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely a three. Oh, okay, so a three for the Duke. Jim Broban yeah. and Helen Mirren. I, I hope that they are just as delightful together as they are in my dreams. Yeah. <laughs> Right, so we're going to our final thing this week, and we go back to Netflix, and this is a Netflix original called Space Force. So, Space Force is a, I, I would say, yeah, it's a much maligned comedy series from 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 um, Steve Carell, and yeah, so so it's a much maligned um, comedy series from Steve Carell uh, that was released on Netflix in the in the uh, aftermath of, I believe. Trump saying something about wanting to militarize space and wanting to be like the greatest force in space. And I think that that's where this whole thing came from, Space Force. So the first season has this whole satirical vein running through it where they keep talking about the president. They never mention the president by name, but they do say things like, oh my God, the president's about to send up another tweet uh, or the... or." Or you, um, you have you have displeased the presidents, therefore you don't get any ice cream this week, or something like that. And it kicks off with 
Steve Carell, who is a four-star general, and he's going into a meeting of the Joint Chief of Staffs because he believes he's about to be given the role of Air Force. He's going to be made the role of Air Force because there's another guy who is in charge of the Air Force who he doesn't like, and he doesn't think he's good at his job. But then when he goes in there to say, no, you're going to be given the role for Air Force, you have Lisa Kudrow, who plays his wife, and Lisa Kudrow is kind of like, oh, yeah, don't worry, it's going to be fine, and he's there with his daughter, and they think everything's going to be good because they're going to live in Washington, D.C., and they're going to get to the upper echelons. But then they find out that he's been given Space Force, and Space Force runs out of Colorado, out of a back end of a place called Wild Horse, Colorado. So the next time you see them, they have relocated to Colorado, Lisa Kudrow's in jail for some reason, and they never tell you why she's in jail. They never tell you what she did to end up in jail. His daughter's not happy about it. He's running like this whole... Th- he's, he's trying to keep Space Force together. And you have John Malkovich. John Malkovich, who plays the lead scientist, who is always coming up with... Talking about the science, and he's talking about the military. And he has the president yelling at him because the president sees it as like, we've got to go with him, militarized space. And the scientist sees it as a scientific endeavor. And so there's this whole thing where there's some satire in it and there's a comedy in it. And I think because the first season was made in the shadow of Trump, the commentary that they, a friend of mine, Yatish Palmer, who watched it because everything I heard about this show said it wasn't that good. Yatish watched it and Yatish said, I quite like it. So I was like, okay, cool. I trust him more than I trust some random critic. I'll watch it. So, and, and he says that he thinks in the first season, the satire gets in the way of the comedy because they, you can see that quite frankly, the people who made this show don't agree with Trump and they keep having to point out how absurd some of the stuff that they would, that you would have to deal with if you were trying to do a space force is when it focuses on the comedy, like the second episode, there's a whole bit where, where they, they, (laughs) okay, this is going to sound crazy, but they are trying to get a chimpanzee to fix a satellite in space. (laughs) What could go wrong with that? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. It gets absurd. It gets absurd and it gets absurd quick. What, what all these, but I think the, the standout thing and the reason I would say watch Space Force is for John Malkovich. John Malkovich is just brilliant in this. You, I mean, he's worth the price of admission alone. Just watching John Malkovich play this scientist who can't, has had it, has had it with all this nonsense around him. I doesn't have much time for anything. The and the they you don't really get most of the characters don't really get a look in apart from Steve Carell and John Malkovich. I can understand why some people didn't quite like it because, but I actually think it's quite good. I think it's quite a good show. I think it's the second season because the second season was obviously made when there was a different presidential administration in because they chuck all that, they chuck all that stuff about talking about it and they just focus on the Space Force thing itself. It's kind of neither here nor there. There's only seven episodes and there's some. There's some um, there's some uh, storylines that get picked up and they never get put down again, or they never actually get, they never get, they they don't go anywhere. You're like, wait, wait, what about that? What about that? And it also does one of the tropes that I think is one of the laziest, laziest tropes. So obviously you have a you have a husband and wife. She's up in jail, and they keep telling you that she's going to be in jail for decades. They never tell you what it is that she did, but you know she's going to be in jail for decades. And there's a discussion they have about what that means for a marriage at the towards the end of the first season that I think is a really interesting conundrum that they raise. They even had me and my wife saying, what would you do in that situation? And, you know, made it made it a real sort of... And I was like, oh, this is actually... It's not going for an easy ans- uh, answer. But then in season two, they go for the easy thing, which is, oh. which is out of nowhere, there's just somebody gets served divorce papers seemingly for a cheap joke which seems to contravene everything that has gone beforehand and i was like but, but why did you do that that the, the, and so the second season is weird because you don't know if it was cut short because of covid you don't know if something else happened but there's just something that feels like the second season's incomplete like yeah. you haven't you haven't finished an arc you haven't finished a story it just kind of stops uh, so all in all, I liked it, but I would have to give it a three out of five. I'm not sure if they're going to make much more, but I know that there's going to. I know that there's a lot of people who are happy for it, not to, because there's articles that say things like, "Why has Why has Netflix cancelled all this good stuff, but still they are paying to make Space Force?" <laughs> and and I, I thought Space Force was all right. I thought it was all right. It isn't. It's not the best thing. It's no Brooklyn Nine Nine, but um, but I thought it was quite good. Right. So at the end of all that, Sharon. 
What do you think? Who do you? What do you think has come of our head? Is it Netflix or cinema this week? I think it's cinema. You think it's cinema? Yeah, because I think we had that too on the Netflix <laughs> side. So I think, even though, yeah, I probably think cinema picked it this week. Well, I am pleased to inform you that we have a dead heat. Wow. Yeah, we had a dead heat. So cinema. Cinema kept up like a sort of consistent bit of quality going through. So we had the four with the Batman, but then everything was a three, three, three. And the book of Boba Fett threatened to sink Netflix and all that. But Land and the Farewell raised it up with their fours. <laughs> Said, no, no, we will not go down today. So it is a dead heat. This week, our money, or over the past two weeks, over the past fortnight, our money has been spent equally well in cinema and on Netflix. That's good. On average, Book of Boba Fett. I'm not getting that time back. But so, <laughs> <laughs> so until next week where we will find something to watch and hopefully yeah, we'll, we'll probably be back to like, you know, two films in the cinema. It's a goodbye from me. And a goodbye from me. Thank you very much for listening this far. Bye.